Joel chapter 2 this morning, verses 18 to 32. How broken is so broken that God either can't fix it or wouldn't fix it? Um, how, how far gone into sin and the consequences of sin can a person go to where God says either, you know, that's just too far for me to fix and to save and to redeem, or, or I just don't want to at that point. You know, like when you bring your car to the, the mechanic and you don't know if the mechanic's going to say, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can fix that. We'll just put in this part and that part and we'll do it. Or is the mechanic going to say, you know, it's totaled. We just need to get rid of this one and need to get a new car. You know, at what point is a life beyond God's power and willingness to redeem and to save? Well, Joel uh, was preaching to Israel in a day where you might say if Israel was, if any nation was on the line, Israel was right on that line. You know, as, as we studied Joel last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at Joel chapter 1, the first half of chapter 2, and Joel was preaching to Israel in some really lousy times. Israel was in a very bad place. Um, they were under God's judgment, and there was more judgment on the way. Uh, for those of you who were here last Sunday, just a quick recap. Do you remember uh, we, there were two judgment prophecies that we looked at last Sunday? The first one was Joel chapter 1. And just for the sake of kind of keeping this all clear, let's call that judgment prophecy A. Do you guys remember that in chapter 1? And what was that one about? It was about locusts. You guys remember that whole thing? The locusts had come upon Israel. They'd eaten everything. And it was a total economic uh, disaster that was taking place. The people were in bad shape. Of course, you know, grasshoppers may not sound that scary to us. But when you're an agrarian culture in ancient times, a local economy, that was disastrous. So this was a life and death dire kind of situation that had come upon the people of Israel. And so there's Joel, you know, Joel chapter 1 verse 4. What the locust swarms have left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the other young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. And so the question is, can God save Israel? Are they just too, is it too chewed up, literally? Is it too devoured by these locusts? Is there any hope? But then it gets worse. Because in chapter 2, you come to what we'll call judgment prophecy B, which is basically Joel saying, you know, these locusts are just kind of a foreshadowing. They're just a prefigurement. They're just a little microcosmic glimpse of the great day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the final judgment that's still coming upon the earth. So, so it's kind of a springboard. You know, Joel's like, you know how these locusts have just covered everything and ruined everything and there's no escape? That's how it's going to be on the great judgment day when God comes to judge the earth and no one's going to escape and it's going to be everywhere and it's going to destroy everything. So you get that in chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming it is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> Terrible day. Terrible things are coming. So Joel's saying, it's bad, Israel. You better cry out to God because the locusts have wiped us out. And guess what? It's going to even get worse. 
And what's coming down the road is just hinted at by these locusts. And who can escape that coming day of judgment? So you have judgment prophecy A, which then springs boards into a far more terrifying judgment prophecy of the final judgment of God, judgment prophecy B. And again, it raises the question, can God save a people this broken? Can God restore or reverse what's taken place in these verses? Joel wonders. You know, you look at Joel chapter 2, verse 14. He's, he's telling them to cry out to God, and he says in verse 14, who knows? He, God, may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. And it's possible, but who knows? So it's kind of up in the air. They don't really know. It, it's not a hopeful picture. But as you turn to the next prophecy that begins in chapter 2, verse 18, as you turn to that page, you suddenly find that, that we have a major transition in the book of Joel from really bad news to prophecies of salvation. You know, I, I said this when I was uh, introducing you guys to the minor prophets, that generally speaking, you can categorize all the prophetic literature into two categories. There's bad news, and then there's good news. So, the first part of Joel is bad news, but when you get to chapter 2, verse 18, there's good news that God can and will and is in fact planning to save this ruined, trashed people who've sinned against God and are suffering under the consequences of their sin and who face the final judgment. God's going to do something to save them. So what I want to do is I want to read chapter 2, verses 18 to 32 for you. And as I do, I want you to listen and see if you can find two salvation prophecies in it. So there's two judgment prophecies at the beginning of the book, an A and a B. And then there's two salvation prophecies, which are also kind of an A and a B. And the A's, I'm going to show you, correspond with the A's, and the B's correspond with the B's. I'll explain that in a minute. Let me just read it for now and see if you can hear the two different salvation prophecies in verses 18 to 32. Okay, here we go. Then the Lord will be jealous for His land and take pity on His people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land, with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea. Its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely He has done great things. Be not afraid, O land, but be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you both Send you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts. The other locusts and the locusts swarm. My great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There's no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So did you see that the two prophecies here? Could you, could you find the divisions? The first one is in verses 18 to 27, right? And then the second one is in verses 28 to 32. So you have a salvation prophecy A and a salvation prophecy B. And what I want you to notice is that each of these salvation prophecies, A and B, answer directly to the disaster or judgment prophecies, A and B, from the first half of the book. So what was the first judgment prophecy? Locusts. What's the first salvation prophecy? God's going to reverse what those locusts did. So he starts out in verse 19, I'm going to send you grain and wine and oil. I'm going to make sure that the agricultural devastation these bugs caused will get reversed. Verse 20, he's going to drive the northern army, that, that is these locusts, he's going to drive them away, send them out in the desert where they're going to die and it's going to stink. They'll be, all be dead out there. And then God starts speaking encouraging words. Verse 21, don't be afraid, land. He's like speaking to the land. Then he's speaking to the wild animals. Verse 22, don't be afraid. Verse 23, be glad, people, because God's going to pour rain. All, all this barren land you see is going to become green again. I'm going to send you... The, the early rains in August, I'm going to send you the late rains in the spring. And then verse 24, the threshing floor will be filled, the vats will overflow. All the agricultural disaster that struck because of that judgment, God says, I'm going to reverse. And He's going to do it because He takes pity on His people. You know, back there in verse 18, the Lord will be jealous for His land and take pity on His people. Yet This is something important to understand. When God saves people, it's not because they fixed themselves up enough to be worthy of His saving. All we can do is cry out to God, God, save me. And then God has pity. God has mercy. It's not that Israel sort of blew it and then they kind of got themselves cleaned up and then when God was like, you know, they're trying pretty hard. Okay, that's good enough. And God kind of cooperates with them. No, no, no. They just cry out to God, God, have mercy on us. And God in His grace has mercy, and He takes pity on them. And so God promises, because of, because of who He is, He's going to reverse the curse of all of these locusts. Probably verse 25 is my favorite verse. You know when you study a book of the Bible, like a couple of verses just kind of stick, and you love them, and you kind of treasure them? I love verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. I'll make it up. Look how bad it looks. Can you guys believe it? All those trees, the bugs stripped them clean, and your vineyards, you know, you walk out to your vineyards that by August should be green and full of grapes and just kind of filling your heart up with joy. You look at your vineyards and they're stripped clean, and the green fields that you, all, you know, look out on, ah, you know, the amber waves of grain, dead. 
and you think, this is a mess. Could anything ever fix this? Could, could that ever be restored? And God says, I will repay the years the locusts have eaten. God can restore what the locusts have done. Even when we sin, and even when we're the locusts, <laughs> in a sense, and because of our own stupid choices and because of the ways we've wandered from God and our lives have gone into certain disasters and problems and there's all this mess of all the things that have happened to us and we think, oh, I'm just too broken, I'm too ruined. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. When you come to faith in Christ, God not only forgives your sins, but to a degree in this life, He begins rebuilding and restoring the effects of sin that, that have built up. Um, you know, that won't fully come to pass until the new heavens and the new earth. We, we can't expect to be fully restored in this life, but God begins to restore us. It's an amazing thing that God not only saves, but He rebuilds and restores. And he, even to, some of the terrible things that have happened to us, even from our own sinful actions, God saves and He restores graciously. It's incredible. Now, I, I want to be really careful with that. Because you could abuse that idea. And in fact, it does get abused. Uh, you, you know, there's a, it, it is getting abused. Uh, there's some of, uh, there's a, another doctrine that's taught. Uh, it's here in the United States to a certain degree. If you go to where the, uh, the Donaldsons are in Central America, South America, uh, if you go to Africa, this doctrine is like, you talk about a locust swarm devouring the church. It's, it's called the, the prosperity gospel. I don't know, you know, we've heard about some of it here, but it is all over the, the, the Christian church around the world. It's terrible, you know, it destroys churches. And the prosperity gospel is, well, I mean, you could probably guess just from the title. The idea is if you believe the gospel, if you believe in Jesus, God will give you prosperity. You know, he'll make you healthy, he'll make you wealthy, he'll solve all your problems. And so come to Jesus so Jesus can make you rich and Jesus can give you the American dream, you know. It, it, it's, it's that kind of idea. And uh, I was just talking to a brother right before this service, who's a Brazilian, served as a Brazilian pastor, and he was just talking about how the prosperity gospel is just everywhere among Brazilian churches in Boston, and just how it grieves his heart to, to see people believing that. And we, we have it here in the States, too. Some of you maybe seen Joel Olstein on TV. He's a prosperity preacher. You know, believe it, say it, name it, claim it. God will give it to you. And uh, there's just huge problems with the prosperity gospel. It's, it's just, it's a really bad thing. Um, you know, because the prosperity gospel has no real room for suffering. And a lot of the Christian life is suffering. And the prosperity gospel has no room for take up your cross and follow me. And what do you say to Christians who are in other countries who are in prison for their faith? Do we say, well, you just didn't have enough faith. That's why you're in prison. Like, it just, it, it's a mess. So I, I don't want you to hear when I'm saying this morning that God restores the years the locusts have eaten as some kind of just, if you just believe, God's going to fix you. All your problems are going to go away. Sometimes you follow Christ and things get worse in some ways. You know, it can be challenging. And yet, as with most false teachings, there is an element of truth in them that's just been twisted and abused. And I think the element of truth is God does restore it's not a formula. You can't name it and claim it. It's not fully in this life, but God does restore. When you come to faith in Christ, He begins rebuilding us. 
And, and it's, a, it's sort of a precursor of the final blessings that will come in the new creation. But God does. He, he puts our hearts, He begins to put our lives back together, our hearts, our emotions, our minds. You know, we, um, we had a baptismal service a couple Sunday nights ago, and I love those baptismal services. If you haven't been to one, you've got to go to the next one. They're awesome. And, uh, and in them, just regular people uh, talk about how they came to faith in Christ and the difference that Christ has made. And, you know, there's that story of this is how I came to believe in Jesus. But you, what you also get in those stories is, and this is what my life was like before, and you just hear about what the locusts have done. You just hear about locust damage. And then they'll say, and this is what's happened in my life since then. And you hear about restoration. Not complete, total, perfect, but, you know, God is, is taking people who've, whose marriage has crashed, and then there's, there's new life and a new relationship on the other side that's with a Christian spouse, and it's amazing. Or, or you hear about, um, you, you know, somebody who grew up in a, a very sin-filled home and, and just the damage it did to their emotions and to their mind and their self-perception and their view of reality. And then they come to faith in Jesus and they're forgiven and God begins to rebuild their sense of personhood and their, their sense of, of purpose and identity in Christ. And so we see not only the gospel but the effects of the gospel. God restores lives. He, you know, Christianity is very practical. It really does save people not just for the sweet by and by but here and now. It's amazing. And so God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. It's an encouraging thought, isn't it? That God can take us in our lives today and things we look back on and, and get so discouraged about and we feel like such failures about, and maybe we have been. And God says, you know, I can take care of that in my own time, in my own way. And why does He do it? This is so important. He does it so that we will praise Him. He does it for His glory. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat until you're full. I'm going to restore you. Why? So that you will praise the name of the Lord your God. He restores us for His glory. We're the means and He's the end. Verse 27, then you will know that I am an Israel that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. The whole purpose of me bringing you out of the hole and, and building you back up is so that you'll know that I am the Lord. So that means, I, so step back and think about this with me. That means that when God sends trials and difficulties into our life, or when God sends blessing and restoration into our life, He's doing it for the same purpose, that we would know Him and savor Him. Sometimes God draws me closer to Himself by hitting me with blows that, that make me drop the things in life that I was holding on to, and I'm like, I'm so happy, and God drops them out of my hands, and I'm like, God, I don't have anything. You have me. Right, I have you. Why did I forget that? And sometimes God shows me who He is by pouring things into my arms, and I, I'm supposed to look up at Him and be like, you're so awesome. But either way, the goal is to get to Him. And if you don't get to God through suffering or through blessing, then you're missing the whole point. That's a great word for us as a church. Because, you know, you look around a congregation. Anytime in a church, you can look around. And there's a person over here. Man, when it rains, it pours. They're going through so much hard time in life. And, you know, then I get a text or I get an email or a Facebook message. And, Pastor, pray for me. Guess what else happened? Can you believe it? Like, I can't believe it. 
Why are all these bad things happening to you? And then someone else over here, it's like, you know, God's blessing their socks off, as people are wont to say. Like, how can it be that God's cursing that one and blessing that one? You know, or so it seems. Uh, you, you know, and, and the person who's under suffering, they're looking at the other person going like, why are you so lucky? And, you know, the, the person who's blessed is like, what did you do? And, uh, <laughs> but really, when you step back and you realize we're all his children and he's taking all kinds of different paths to bring us closer to himself, then, then as a body, it's, it's not just that I'm individually drawing close to God, but we need to love each other as a church. And those who are strong helping those who are weak, because next week the ones who are weak will probably be the strong ones helping those who are weak. And, and as a body, we're, we're just kind of loving each other, and whether in plenty or in want, we're all pointing one another to the glory of God as we are getting to know our Father together better. And that's what it means to be a church, so, sort of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's all about knowing Him, not about our current temporal situation. So yes, God can save. Yep, the locusts have done it, but God can restore it. He can restore the years and repay the years the locusts have eaten. But what about the final judgment? Great, so God restores our crops, but if we're lost at the final judgment, what does it matter? Who cares if God blesses you with every material blessing in this life? If you come to the judgment day and you are lost... It didn't matter. I mean, you, you could be as wealthy as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and you can be as attractive as Brad and Angelina, and you can have you know, everything going for you in life. But if you come to the final judgment day and, and God is against you, what does it matter? So, so there's the, the other question. What about, all right, so judgment A, God can restore that. But what about judgment B? Is God going to do anything there? And you'll notice that in chapter 2 it ends with salvation prophecy B that corresponds to judgment prophecy B, so that both, both of these look to the final day of the Lord. And judgment prophecy B warned us of this terrible day that's coming. Look back at chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. I just want to remind you of that, again, that judgment prophecy about the final judgment day. Before, verse 10, before the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are behind, beyond number. And mighty are those who obey His command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Terrifying. Who can endure the coming judgment of God? So now turn to the end of chapter 2. Here's salvation prophecy B. And notice, it also is focused on that final judgment day. Look at verses 30 and 31. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and coming, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So again, the day of the Lord is in view, B and B. But in salvation prophecy B, that terrible day of the Lord in verses 30 and 31 is sandwiched between wonderful prophecies of hope. So there's the bad news. Yep, that day is still coming. The news in Salvation Prophecy B isn't the day of the Lord got canceled or called off. It's still coming. But there's a way to escape it. That's the good news. It's still coming, but there's a way out. And that's what you see in verses 28 and 29. That's the top half of the sandwich. 
of salvation. In verse 32, there's the other part. And then the day of the Lord's kind of sandwiched in between them. So, so look at verses 28 and 29. What's the first part of the good news? It's that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. Verses 28 and 29. Afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. See, you get it? Day of judgment. Is it still on? It's still on. It's still coming. But before that day gets here, there's going to be some point in the future, Joel saying, where God is just going to dump out His Holy Spirit on His people. Pour it out. Just like in verse 23, He sent rains on the barren land, so now He's going to pour out His Spirit on His people. And what's so cool is it's going to be poured out on all of His people, verse 28. I'll pour out my Spirit on all people, sons and daughters, old men and young men, servants, both men and women, everybody, all of God's people will receive the Spirit, which is really cool because in the Old Testament, it was always a selective giving of the Spirit. You know, there's a couple prophets who got the Spirit, and maybe a king, and maybe a judge, and maybe some guy who had a special job to like make the gold things in the temple, he got the Spirit. But otherwise, you know, the Spirit was very selectively given. Even when you look at Israel as a whole, on the whole, the whole nation didn't have the Spirit. They, they, they were stiff-necked and rebellious. There was always a little remnant that had the Spirit. You know, in Elijah's day, everyone worshipped Baal. Well, there were 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. There were some who had the Spirit of faith, but most of them didn't. But Joel's like, no, 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 no. Before the end, there's going to come a time when all of the people of God, all of God's covenant people, will have the Spirit poured out on them. And they'll know me. And I'll speak to them. And, and they'll know me. They'll, they'll hear my voice. They'll follow me. That's awesome. And then, verse 32, look at the other half of the sandwich. The other bun of this this. Lord's day of the Lord's sandwich. He says in verse 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For the mountain, for on Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be deliverance as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So the other cool thing that's going to happen in this future time before the coming judgment day is there's going to come a day when everyone, everyone, doesn't matter who you are, no matter what your background is, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is everyone whom the Lord calls. So there again, you have the wonderful, our responsibility to call on the name of the Lord and God's sovereignty in calling whom He calls just put together there and left in front of us. But it's anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Anyone? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do you escape the judgment day? You have to call on the name of the Lord. That's pretty cool. That's, that's awesome. When's that going to happen? When is it going to happen that the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out and anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved? It's already happened. It's already begun. Check out the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2, page 1078 in the Pew Bible. This is so cool. Acts chapter 2. Mm. 
Now we're in Acts chapter 2, several centuries after Joel. We don't know how many, because we're not sure when Joel was written. Several centuries after Joel. It's the day of Pentecost. Jesus Christ has just gone back to heaven after being raised from the dead, and the disciples are all praying. And on the day of Pentecost, something happened. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just Peter, not just John, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They're prophesying. They're speaking Spirit-inspired utterances from God, and they're praising God. Well, this started a stir. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing men from every nation under heaven, all peoples. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They're prophesying. They're speaking words about God's glory as the Spirit is giving them to them. And amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Why is this happening? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. I'm going to tell you exactly why this happened. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So Joel is saying that future time right before the coming judgment, the last days, the end times, is today, right? Sometimes people ask me, Pastor, do you think we're in the end times? And I always say, yes. We've been in the end times for 2,000 years. We're in the end times. This is it. The end times began with the resurrection of Christ. This is the end. This is it. Next big thing that happens, return of the Lord. And then it's, you know, well, we can argue about that, but then it's, it's done. <laughs> Whatever, it's done at that point. This is the last age of human history as we know it. We're in the last days, and we know it because these last days things have happened, like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and he quotes Joel too that we've just studied. So, so Peter's saying, look, I'll tell you what happened on the day of Pentecost. The prophecy of Joel finally came true. God is pouring out His Spirit on all His people, not just a select few. And, and if you Step back from Acts, like kind of zoom out from Acts, and not just look at chapter 2, but kind of look at the whole book of Acts. Like in some ways, that's kind of the storyline of Acts, is that the gospel gets preached, and people believe, and then they get the Holy Spirit. You know, the Samaritans hear the gospel. The Samaritans believe, these kind of half-Jew-Gentile mixes, and, and they get the Holy Spirit. And then the Gentiles believe, and then they get the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit is just being given to all God's people as people come to faith in Jesus. It's, it's so cool. And so, brothers and sisters, we live in the age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God is pouring out His Spirit. And, and is still pouring out His Spirit. You know, the rains keep coming. Awakenings keep happening. Things like Pentecost s- still happen. I mean, this was certainly a unique event in some ways, and yet in other ways, God's Spirit is still being poured out upon His church. The, the early rains and the latter rains are still coming, and they're still coming. We know, we, we look at church history, and we see that at many times throughout church history, there have been periods and places and times when God has moved in a dramatic way. We call them revivals. We call them awakenings. But God does this. You know, God is at work in our church. A person's being saved here. A person's being saved there. But there are times when God just pours out a spirit, just like dumps the whole bucket. And, and people are saved by the hundreds and by the thousands. It's happened here in Boston in the Great Awakening. It happened in Wales in the 1900s in the Welsh Revival. It happens all over the world. It's been happening in China as Tens of millions have been coming to faith in the last couple decades. It's, it's happening in different places. You can't control it. You can't predict it. God just moves and He pours out His Spirit. Just like, you know, it's like New England weather. Is it going to rain tomorrow? I don't know. Then it might. And that's how the Spirit is. It'll come when it comes. And when it does, it's amazing. So, brothers and sisters, we need to be praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our region. You know, I look at our church, and, and you know, you try to, as a pastor, you try to spiritually assess your church and uh, where are we at. And I, I think we, we are enjoying right now a, a good measure of church health. We're not perfect for sure. There's definitely unhealthy things, you know, like me. Uh, you know, we're all unhealthy to a degree spiritually. But there's a measure of church health in our church, and I'm really praising God for that. But I'm also praying for revival, which is something even bigger. It's like church health on steroids, where we're all suddenly like, all I want to do is worship God and be His servant and give my life to Him. You know, where it's not like one couple, old couple that came back from Peru. In times of revival, it's, it's dozens of young couples saying, I'm going. Show me where the hardest place is, and I'm going, because all that matters is to serve the Lord and give my life for Him. That happens in revival. And in revival, people weep over their sins and people lift their hands and go crazy because God has saved them. And and the reality of eternal things becomes so uh, tangible that people are are just infatuated with the Lord. That's what happens when His Spirit is poured out. And so I think we need to pray for revival in our church and in the South Shore. If for no other reason, then we're in the age of the outpouring. And so we can pray for that, for out, more outpouring. Why not? Are the clouds dry yet? Is the Holy Spirit exhausted yet? Or could we not pray? But notice the other thing, just to finish up Acts here. You not only, so, so Joel 2 appears in Acts. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is seen as the fulfillment of the prophecy, the beginning of the prophecy in Joel 2. But here's the other thing that is fulfilled in Acts 2, it's that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember the other half of the sandwich. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 21. 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what is the name of the Lord? His name is Jesus. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus. <laughs> First words out of his mouth. All right, ready? I'm going to start the sermon. Here we go. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles. And really, if, if, if you look at it, from verse 22, Peter's sermon, all the way to verse 36, the conclusion of his sermon, the entire sermon's purpose is to, to argue and to show that Jesus is the Lord upon whose name you must call. It's like the whole rest of the sermon is, and Jesus is the Lord. Call in the name of the Lord to be saved, and this is who the Lord is. It's Jesus. He was crucified, he was raised, and he argues and quotes Scripture. And then he concludes his sermon, verse 36. How does he conclude his sermon? Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both, who? Lord and Christ. That's, that's Joel language. Call on the name of the Lord. And you've got to know this. Jesus has been made Lord. So call on the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Whoa, we didn't realize this. And we're on the wrong side of the equation. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. There's Joel 2 language for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit, Joel 2 language. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all the Lord will call. Joel 2 language. So he begins and ends his sermon with Joel 2. He begins and ends his sermon with the outpouring of the Spirit and the promise of the Spirit. He begins and ends his sermon with calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so this is, this is the news of the gospel. That if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved and you can have the Holy Spirit. And that's where we are. We are in that time in human history where the Spirit is available and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what your record is, what your background is, how much bad stuff you've been into, whether or not you've been in prison, how much unbelief you've had, how old you are. Maybe you're like, man, I'm so old. There's no way. I, you know, I don't know how many years i got left. How, how could God take me now? No, no. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can have the Holy Spirit. But you've got to call on the name of Jesus. If you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. If you trust in being a good Catholic, you will not be saved. If you trust in being a good Baptist, you will not be saved. If you trust in being a good person, you will not be saved. If you trust in reducing your carbon footprint, is this not the religion of our day? You will not be saved. If you trust in being a good American and, and a good, you know, faithful back to the Constitution person, you will not be saved. If you trust in being a good Jew or a good Muslim, you will not be saved. 
But if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's faith in Christ. That's the whole thing. And with many other words, verse 40, he warned and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And so we need to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the beauty of of this age of salvation is the great day of judgment is coming. It's so inescapable. It's so terrible. I I could sit up here and preach all day about how terrible the day of judgment is coming. I could sit here and read Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it wouldn't even approximate how terrible that day is going to be. People can't explain how terrible hell is going to be and do it justice. And yet, if you'll just call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do call upon you and we cry out to you Because you alone, you alone were resurrected. You alone were crucified. And Lord Jesus, you alone are Lord. And so we call out to you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us so that we might have faith in you. Lord, it's just so easy to put our confidence in so many other things. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do whatever it takes to strip us of our faith in our good works or our religion or our spirituality or whatever it is we look to. And that, Lord, we would see that You alone, Jesus, died and were raised, and You alone are the perfect sacrifice. And so, Lord, I pray, give us faith in You. I pray that anyone here who doesn't know You would call upon You. I pray, God, that, that, uh, that You would shake us up and wake us up so we might call upon Christ. I pray, Lord, pour out Your Holy Spirit. Pour out Your Holy Spirit on South Shore Baptist Church. Oh, Lord, we're such a fragile little church. We need your Spirit to fill us up. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on South Weymouth Church of the Nazarene. And Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on First Baptist Church of Weymouth. And Lord, would you pour out your Spirit on North Street Community Church here in Hingham. And Lord, I pray that you'd pour out your Spirit on the Roman Catholic churches on the South Shore that many people would hear the gospel and would repent and believe. And Lord, would you pour out your Spirit on people who will never set foot in a church? Lord, pour out your Spirit into the bars, into the combat zone, into the crack houses. Lord, pour out your Spirit into the power brokers' boardrooms in in Boston, in the the big towers where all the people make the big decisions. Oh God, I pray that there would be a spirit of repentance that would come upon Boston. Lord, pour out your spirit into nursing homes where people are on their last days and they need to know there is still time to come to the kingdom. Oh Lord Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on this region and have mercy, not because we deserve it, not because we've got a good program or a good anything, Would you just do it to show that you can do it so that we might stand in awe of you? Would you send a mighty revival upon us? Again, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.